recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogania Saturdays. Today is Saturday, July 12, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This program tonight and next week's program are two programs that are rather, um, but well, to me, they're rather um, pedantic. I would really rather not have to do programs like this if it weren't for all the clowns, the, the insane clown posse, the clowns trying to mongrelize Christian identity and looking for any excuse they could find in Scripture in order to admit bastards into the congregation of Israel. That's why I have to do tonight's program. That's almost why I have to do next week's program. This is explaining to Seed Line, and it should be some myths dispelled. I, I should have retitled it. I, I actually am doing a program tonight that is nothing like I had originally planned. We might get to some of that next week. Instead, because of all the interlopers in Christian identity who have been singing a different tune, a tune to an alien song, we tonight shall discuss four topics. The Gibeonites, the Canaanite woman, the Samaritan woman, and the Good Samaritan. We have to do this in pursuit of our continued endeavor to distinguish the clowns in our Christian identity circus. The Baptist ass clown, Don Spears, the, 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 um, the guy that runs um, Cherokee People's Ministry, Jeremy, Geronimo Visser, the, the, the ringleader of the insane clown posse that goes by the name Eli James, but his real name is Joseph November. He's actually a Jew crawled out of the Polish ghettos. That's what he really is. These clowns are trying to destroy Christian identity and turn it into something more like Judeo-Christianity by attempting to obscure the true racial message of Scripture. The Jew boy in Chicago, the one with the Anglo half-breed Israel website, I think he calls it, who is playing hard at CI Pastor, but who should really be a rabbi instead, has been pushing this story of the Gibeonites, and especially the account in 2 Samuel, chapter 21, of their demands of David for vengeance against the house of Saul. He's been pushing this story in order to promote universalism and Christian identity. Here we shall examine that story in depth, the story of the Gibeonites. And we'll start by reading Joshua, chapter 9. And it came to pass... This is the conquest of Canaan by the children of Israel after the 40 years in the desert, right? And it came to pass when all the kings which were on this side of the Jordan, in the hills and in the valleys and in all the coasts of the great sea over against Lebanon, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite heard thereof heard about the conquests which the children had, of Israel had made on the other side of the Jordan. That they got, and, and at Jericho, when they first crossed, and places like that, that when they gathered themselves together to fight with Joshua and with Israel with one accord, and when the inhabitants of Gibeon 
heard what Joshua had done unto Jericho and to Ahi. They did work craftily. I know the King James has another word. I'm not going to try to say it, right? I, I know how. They did work craftily and went and made as if they had been ambassadors and took old sacks upon their asses and wine bottles, old and rent. And they had been ambassadors. I'm sorry, and bound up. And old shoes and clouded upon their feet and old garments upon them and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua unto the camp at Gilgal and said unto him and to the men of Israel, We be come from a far country. Now therefore make ye a league with us. And the men of Israel said unto the Hivites, of course they didn't know they were Hivites, this account's being recorded later. And the men of Israel said unto the Hivites, Peradventure ye dwell among us, and how shall we make a league with you? And they said unto Joshua, We are thy servants. And Joshua said unto them, Who are you? And from whence come you? And they said unto him, From a very far country. Thy servants are come because of the name of Yahweh thy God. For we have heard the fame of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond Jordan to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. Wherefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take victuals with you for the journey, and go meet them, and say unto them, We are your servants, therefore now make a league with us. This our bread we took hot for our provision out of our houses on the day we came forth to go unto you. But now, behold, it is dry and moldy. And these bottles of wine, which we filled, were new, and behold, they be rent. And these are garments, and our shoes are become old by reason of the long journey. And the men took of their victuals, and asked not the counsel at the mouth of Yahweh. That's important. It's important to understand that Yahweh did not approve of any of this, that he was never inquired of with the Orem and the Thummim, right? And Joshua made peace with them and made a league with them to let them live. And the princes of the congregation swear unto them. And it's important to note that when this happened, that these men who were Gideonites were not detected as Canaanites by their appearance. With their appearance, they did not set off the, 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 the Judar, right? as some people in Christian identity like to call it. They didn't spot that these people were Canaanites. And Joshua made peace with them and made a league with them to let them live. And the princes of the congregation swear unto them. And it came to pass at the end of three days, after they had made a league with them, that they heard that they were their neighbors, and that they dwelt among them. And the children of Israel journeyed and came unto their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon and Shephira and Beeroth and Kirath-Jerim. And the children of Israel smote them not, 
because the princes of the congregation had sworn unto them by Yahweh, the God of Israel, and all the congregation murmured against the princes, all the congregation, all the people of, the, of Israel did not like that their leaders had made this deal with these Canaanites, these Gideonites. But all the princes said unto the, all the, the congregation, we have sworn unto them by Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now therefore, we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will even let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore unto them. And it must be noted that the oath was sworn without, first, without the men first inquiring of Yahweh, who was therefore not a party to the oath. We cannot assume that he approved of this oath. In fact, this oath is absolutely contrary to Yahweh's command to the children of Israel not to make leagues with the Canaanites, to have nothing to do with them. And the princes said unto them, let them live, but let them be hewers of wood and drawers of water unto all the congregation, as the princes had promised them. And Joshua called for them, and he spoke unto them, saying, Wherefore you have beguiled us, saying, We are very far from you, when ye dwell among us. Now therefore ye are cursed, and there none of you be freed from being bondmen, and hewers of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. And they answered Joshua and said, Because it was certainly told thy servants how that Yahweh thy God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore we were sore afraid of our lives because of you and have done this thing. And now behold, we are in thine hand, as it seems good and right unto thee to do unto us, do. And so he did unto them, and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel, that they slew them not. And Joshua made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation, and for the altar of Yahweh, even unto this day, in the place which he should choose. Now we don't know exactly when the book of Joshua was compiled but it was for an extended period of time that these people were in bondage to the children of Israel. It was actually much longer than unto this day. In Joshua 9.1, we see that the inhabitants of Gibeon deceived the children of Israel under Joshua into making a pact with them. They used flattery, flattering them to the mighty works of their God, to ingratiate themselves with them, followed by lies in order to deceive them. Sounds like certain Christian identity pastors, or so-called Christian identity pastors. When the Israelites found that they were deceived on their own, they had decided to abide by their pact. Yahweh didn't make them do it. That's not anywhere in, in the text. They decided on their own to do it. 
They never inquired of Yahweh as to any of this, something which they certainly should have done from the beginning. From Joshua 9.7, as well as elsewhere, such as in Joshua chapter 11, verse 19, we learn that these inhabitants of Gibeon were Hivites, one of the tribes of the Canaanites. In Joshua chapter 10, we see that these Gibeonites were used by Yahweh. Everything is in the providence of God, right? We can't imagine that God did not foresee what the children of Israel were going to do, what mistakes they were going to make. If he couldn't foresee it, then he's not God. Of course he foresaw it. In Joshua chapter 10, we see that these Gibeonites were used by Yahweh as a magnet to draw the kings of the Amorites into battle with Israel. And, subsequently, the kings of the Amorites were all destroyed by Israel in the event which is known as Joshua's long day, the day the sun stood still. Then, in Joshua chapter 11, we read from verse 19, There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel, save or accept, right? The Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, all others they took in battle. In Joshua chapter 15, of the cities of the Gibeonites, we see that Kirjath-Jerim became a city of Judah later on. In Joshua 18, we learn that the cities of Gibeon, Chepharah, and Beeroth all fell to the lot of the Benjaminites. In Joshua chapter 21, we see that Gibeon itself became one of the Levitical cities. In later chapters of Scripture, we do see that Israelites, dwelt in these four cities of the Gibeonites. What exactly happened to the Gibeonites that dwelt in those cities isn't entirely clear from the context. They're not followed through the entire scripture. We're told that Yahweh was going to push out the Hivites from before the children of Israel, and then it got to a point where he told them, because they didn't destroy them all, that he would no longer push them out. And we'll read those scriptures momentarily. The enslavement of the Hivites of the cities of Gibeon in part fulfilled the prophecy concerning Canaan. Yahweh for Yahweh foresaw all of this. There's no doubt. Or he wouldn't have been able to make these prophecies, right? In Genesis chapter 9, in verse 24, it says, And Noah awoke from his wine, and knew what his younger son had done unto him. Meaning, Ham, when he saw his father's nakedness, when Canaan was conceived in the womb of Ham's own mother. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. Later, the tribes of the children of Israel put Canaanites in other cities under tribute, in slavery, rather than driving them out. Ephraim did it. Cab did it. All of the tribes did it. This is um, 
explained in part in Judges chapter 1. Later in Scripture, Solomon also had the Canaanite tribes of Sidon from the territory of Asher under bondage and slavery, even though Israelites were inhabiting Sidon also. They were supposed to drive them all out. Instead, they put them under tribute and made them slaves. Cheap labor. It's always our downfall, right? In Numbers chapter 33, the children of Israel were told to destroy or drive out of their land all of the peoples of the Canaanites, without exception. We then see this warning in verse 55. But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which ye let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and shall vex you in the land wherein ye dwell. Moreover, it shall come to pass that I shall do unto you as I thought to do unto them. And of course, the Canaanites drew the children of Israel away into pagan idolatry, bow worship again and again and again. And eventually, Yahweh sent the Assyrians, the Babylonians, to drive the children of Israel out of their land for their punishment for their sin, which originated with the failure of the children of Israel to drive out the Canaanites. This warning is repeated in Joshua chapter 23. And for the same reasons, verse 13, know for a certainty that Yahweh your God will no more drive out any of these nations from before you. But they shall be snares and traps unto you. Like when some Jew play in Kiosk. See, when some Jew pretending to be a Christian identity pastor tells you that Yahweh accepts bastards, well, that's a good example of the fulfillment of this prophecy, that this Canaanite bastard becomes a snare and a trap unto you, and scourges in your sides, and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which Yahweh your God has given you. The ancient Israelites failed to destroy the accursed Canaanites. Now, the Canaanites had been mingled for centuries with the Kenites, with the Rephaim, the seed of Cain, the seed of the serpent, the giants who were the remnant of, of the, the Nephilim, of the Genesis chapter 6 event, who were not destroyed in the flood. That's why we have Rephaim later in Scripture. The Canaanites are mingled, their blood is mingled with these people who dwelt among them for centuries, who intermingled with them for centuries. And why wouldn't they? We see from the Canaanites themselves all throughout Scripture that they wanted to intermingle with the children of Abraham, wherever the children of Abraham were. Take our daughters for your sons, Give our, your daughters to our sons. Make leagues with us. That was the Canaanite way of doing things. So if, if you don't think they did that with the Canaanites and the Rephaim also, and all the other peoples of the area, 
then you're being awfully short-sighted. Ostensibly, because the Canaanites were not extinguished or exterminated as certain, that, that's a favorite word of certain um, make-believe pastors, exterminate, extermination, exterminationists. Because the Canaanites were not exterminated, they would be thorns in the eyes of Israel. I know it says pricks in their sides, too. It says thorns in their eyes. It says pricks in their eyes. That, that's the part we're concerned with here. They would become thorns and pricks in the eyes of the children of Israel because Israel disregarded the commandments of Yahweh. We have recently demonstrated here in our ongoing presentation of Paul's epistle to the Romans, and I'm sorry, I really can't encapsulate this idea from Scripture in, in two minutes. It can't be done. It's um, Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 7, and, and I, I, I um, cited a lot of correlating Scriptures to, to demonstrate my point, that the Adamic man is here to learn what sin is. Paul explains that to some degree in Romans chapter 6 and 7. The Canaanites have been tempting Israel into sin ever since Israel failed to destroy them. They're still doing it today. They're all over the place doing it today. Therefore, today they're called Jews, of course, but a lot of them are crypto-Christian identity pastors. Therefore, it is evident that Yahweh used the stubbornness of the people of Israel against them, knowing that they would disobey him in order to help fulfill not only the Genesis 9 prophecy that the Canaanites would be slaves to Shem, but also that the Adamic man be exposed to sin to learn the consequences of his disobedience. Therefore, upon their disregard of his commandment to destroy the Canaanites, the word of Yahweh further said in Judges chapter 3, Now these are the nations which Yahweh left, to prove Israel by them, even as many as had not known all the wars of Canaan. Only that the generations, plural, right, generations, of the children of Israel might know to teach them war, at the least such as before knew nothing thereof. Namely, the five lords of the Philistines, and they were Adamic people for the most part, and all the Canaanites, and the Sidonians, who were also a branch of the Canaanites, and the Hivites that dwelt in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal-Hermon, unto the entering in of Hamath. And the Hivites were a branch of the Canaanites, and the Gibeonites were Hivites. And they were to prove Israel by them, to know whether they would hearken under the commandments of Yahweh, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. And the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, Hittites, and Amorites, and Perizzites, and Hivites, and Jebusites, 
all of those are branches of the Canaanites. And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their wives to their sons and served their gods. There was some race mixing going on right from the beginning. The Gibeonites were also Hivites and would not be excluded from this declaration. Yahweh has decreed that the Canaanites would be preserved. That's the declaration of Yahweh in Judges chapter 3 and in some of the previous prophecies. Yahweh has decreed that the Canaanites would be preserved and that they would be preserved for this reason, and this reason only, to teach subsequent generations of the children of Israel war, as well as to be pricks and thorns in their eyes. While Yahweh used the disobedience of men to affect his will, it can be asserted with certainty that there is no other reason why the Canaanites would ever be preserved outside of these reasons given in Scripture by Yahweh himself. Any man who imagines any other reason for the, for the preservation of the Canaanites is contending with the word of God. It's not so that they could get mercy at the second coming of Christ. It's not so that they might get some crumbs. That's not why he preserved the Canaanites. He told us why he preserved the Canaanites. To teach the children of Israel war, and we see throughout the entire history of our race that it's the Jew that has gotten us into war after war after war. And to be pricks and thorns in our eyes. And throughout the history of the entire Adamic race, it's the Jew who has been able to deceive white men that depart from the word of God again and again and again. In 2 Samuel chapters 8 and 9, David inquires, and it's important to, to, to watch the order of progression in these scriptures, right? David inquires whether anyone is left of the house of Saul, and only one is left, and that's Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son who is lame in his feet. Having pity, David went out of his way to find anyone left of the house of Saul. And I'll quote from 2 Samuel chapter 9. I'll only quote verses um, 3 through 7. And the king said, Is there not any, yet any, of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God unto him? 
And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan has yet a son, has yet a son. In other words, there's one son left, which is lame in his feet. And the king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Then King David sent and fetched him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. Now, when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come unto David, he fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, thy servant. And David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan, thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul, thy father. So, evidently, once again, this was the only son left, since he is the only heir. And David said, And thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. Now, this is 2 Samuel chapters 8 and 9. David didn't know that Mephibosheth was left. And when he inquired, he finds that Mephibosheth is the only son of Saul's left. In 2 Samuel chapter 21, towards the end of 2 Samuel, there is a story which is certainly out of its place because it describes David surrendering many male members of the house of Saul to the Hivites of Gibeon. And in 2 Samuel chapter 21, those Hivites are inaccurately called Amorites in that chapter. These men... These sons of Saul, which David surrenders, or is said to have surrendered in 2 Samuel chapter 21, evidently did not exist in 2 Samuel chapters 8 and 9 when David first finds out about Mephibosheth. So wherever the story in 2 Samuel chapter 21 belongs, if indeed it belongs at all, we do not know with certainty. There's a few stories at the end of 2 Samuel, the last several chapters, all the way up to 24, which are out of time. And therefore they are out of context. We don't know the context of the original stories if indeed they belong. They were sort of like tacked on to the end of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 21. I'm going to read it from verse 1. We won't read the whole chapter. Then there was a famine in the days of David, three years, year after year. And David inquired of Yahweh, and Yahweh answered, It is for Saul and for his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. And the king called the Gibeonites and said unto them, 
And then there's a parenthetical statement. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Now that's inaccurate because all the other scripture says they were Hivites. And, and the Amorites and Hivites were two different branches of the Canaanites, right? And the children of Israel had sworn unto them, and Saul sought to slay them in his zeal to the children of Israel and Judah. And then verse 3, Wherefore David said unto the Gideonites, What shall I do for you? And wherewith shall I make the atonement that ye may bless the inheritance of Yahweh? And the Gibeonites said unto him, We will have no silver, nor gold of Saul, nor of his house. Neither for us shalt thou kill any man in Israel. But then he, they want David to surrender men of Israel to be slain. So that's kind of like a discrepancy, right? And he said, What ye shall say that I will do for you? And they answered the king, the man that consumed us and that devised against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the coasts of Israel, let seven men of his sons be delivered unto us, and we will hang them up unto the, unto the Lord, unto Yahweh, in Gibeah of Saul, whom Yahweh did choose. This story is not credible to me, right? And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul. Now, you know, back in 2 Samuel 8 and 9, David evidently didn't know about the survival of Mephibosheth and went looking for one of Saul's descendants to show mercy upon. So here, in this out-of-place story, David knows that Mephibosheth is alive as well as seven other sons of Saul. There's a serious discrepancy here. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of Yahweh's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. But the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ahiah, whom she bare unto Saul, Armoni, and Mephibosheth. I guess there's two Mephibosheths, right? And the five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholothite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the hill before Yahweh. And they fell all seven together and were put to death in the days of the harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of the barley harvest, even though earlier in the chapter it said, oh, we don't want you to kill anybody for us in Israel. The chapter goes on to add a lot of other things which David supposedly did, concerning the bones of Saul and Jonathan, and then it describes a battle with the Philistines and the Rephaim. Now this story, where it sits in 2 Samuel, is with all certainty an interpolation. And there are several other stories at the end of 2 Samuel which were apparently added later. And therefore, even if they are to be accepted as being legitimate additions, they are out of place, and the original context is lost.
For instance, here in this account we just read from 2 Samuel chapter 21, where Saul was said to have slain the Gibeonites. Apparently, there is no corroboration for that account anywhere else in Scripture. The story is not told that Saul did this. And if in 2 Samuel chapter 9, David did not know of any surviving members of Saul's house until Mephibosheth was located, and if he was evidently the only surviving male member of the house, how does David know of all these other sons of Saul in 2 Samuel chapter 21? This certainly seems to be an anomaly. It certainly is an anomaly. There's another anomaly tied to this, and that's Shimei, a member of Saul's house. Now, a member of Saul's house is not necessarily a son. It could be a servant, right? So Shimei was probably not a son of Saul. But Shimei, in 2 Samuel chapter 16, in between these two chapters, had already cursed David for the blood of Saul's house. And that's recorded in 2 Samuel 16. So we see that there are problems with this account. There are clear conflicts with this account which cannot be easily resolved. And one thing we do not do is build a doctrine based on one witness and that witness being an account that can be questioned, that should be called into question. It's kind of like trying to make a doctrine out of the book of Esther. It's a phony book that doesn't belong in Scripture. Or maybe the gospel of Judas Iscariot. Maybe we should build our doctrine on that. We have to examine. It's our duty to examine the Scripture and, and, and to look at it critically. That's our obligation. But, if we accept this story concerning the Gibeonites, if we accept that it is true, even if it is out of place, it does not mean the Canaanites are saved. It does not mean that they can. we should take the, the bread of the children, throw it on the floor to the dogs, and call it crumbs. That's not how it works. We don't take the bread of the children, throw it to the dogs, and say, oh, it fell like some pudgy little Jew boy in Chicago would like to do. If we accept this story concerning the Gibeonites as true, it does not mean that Canaanites are saved. It does not mean that Canaanites can receive any sort of blessing from Yahweh. The Gibeonites didn't have an advantage, even if they did. Even if David did turn over seven of the sons of Saul's to the Gibeonites, what did they gain from it? Eternal life? No, they didn't gain a damn thing. Maybe it satiated their Jewish lust for blood? Is that a benefit from Yahweh? That's the way that pudgy little Jew boy in Chicago pretending to be um, Anglo halfbreedisrael.com. That's the way he, he sees it. That's what he's teaching right now. That's not Christian identity. The Gibeonites were Hivites. The word 
of Yahweh says that they would be preserved so that the generations of the children of Israel might know war and so that they could be pricks and thorns in the eyes of the Israelites. David, even if this story is true, David was at, the house, David was at war with the house of Saul for many years. Look all through history, and you'll find corroboration for what I'm about to say. David was at war with the house of Saul for many years, perhaps 20. David had also claimed and ascended to the throne which Saul held over Israel when Saul was killed. If Saul had surviving sons, as it has been all through the history of the ancient world, including the history of Israel, those sons would have a rightful claim to the throne of Saul over Israel. Throughout ancient history, it was therefore customary for a king who took a throne from another family, or sometimes even from members of his own family, to eliminate all other possible claimants. It was natural. It happened all the time in ancient history. Even the Roman emperors did this. The kings of Europe in the Middle Ages did this. If the vengeance of the Gibeonites was used as a vehicle to eliminate any of Saul's sons who may have threatened David's claim to the throne, so be it. That is all the better for David, that he himself spared the bloodshed. It may also reflect the reason why, if he did, that David complied with their request. So the Gibeonite story cannot be extrapolated into universalism. It can't be done. It has nothing to do with taking that bread from the children, throwing it to the dogs, and calling it crumbs. Ripping the bread from the hands of your children and throwing it to the dogs and calling it crumbs. The same pudgy little Jew boy in Chicago who would abuse the story of the Gibeonites has been claiming that we have not effectively answered his claims concerning the encounter of Joshua Christ and the Canaanite woman found in Matthew chapter 15 and Mark chapter 7, which he also abuses in order to promote, to promote I'm sorry, in order to promote universalism in CI, in Christian Israel identity. That is entertaining because I presented a program on the Canaanite woman here last August 31st. And to date, from both the old and the new Christogenia websites, that program has over 9,700 downloads. Yet, I have not had any disputatious communications in reference to that presentation, not one. Therefore, it may be that nearly everyone who has ever listened to either the Jew boy or myself understands that I have answered his claims concerning crumbs and the Canaanite woman. But he is too arrogant. His head is 
far up his own ass, way too far for him to know it. Everybody else should know it. Here I'm going to reiterate a few of the things I said in that program. It can be established with certainty from Matthew that the woman, the Canaanite woman who approached Christ, Matthew chapter 15, was a Canaanite. That is certain because that term, Canaanite, was virtually unknown to the Greeks. Therefore, it was certainly not a geographical term at the time of Christ, not by any means. But to a Hebrew, such as Matthew, it would certainly have been a term describing the woman's race. A Greek would not have known to call the woman a Canaanite, but a Hebrew would. On the other hand, Mark identifies the woman as a Syrophoenician. Now, when Mark wrote his gospel, this can be determined. I discussed it at length in, in my presentation of the Gospel of Mark here in 2011. When Mark wrote his Gospel, he was writing in Rome, and he was writing for a Roman audience. The Roman audience would not have understood the term Canaanite. Mark identifies the woman as a Syrophoenician. Syrophoenician was never a racial term among the Greeks. It was a geographical term. Mark also calls the woman a Greek. Greek was never a racial term among the ancient Greeks. It was a term that identified language and culture. The ancient Greeks identified themselves racially by the name of their tribe. Dorians, Ionians, etc. It is evident from these accounts that Christ initially paid no attention to the Canaanite woman and that the apostles had tried to drive her off. When they failed to do so because of the woman's own persistence, only then did Christ address her. The following couple of paragraphs is quoted for the most part from my presentation on the Canaanite woman of last August. And I said, there was a custom in the ancient world that a defeated enemy or an accused wrongdoer or anyone else who may have fallen into disfavor, if he should prostrate himself before a general or a ruler and grasping the cloak of such a one, admit his fault, and then beg for mercy or forgiveness, arousing the compassion of his master, he would receive as much, or at least be granted a lesser punishment than what was expected. In the same manner, a peasant or other common citizen would do likewise, seeking relief from some trouble or to be granted, from, to be granted some other favor by a ruler. This was the custom of the suppliant. The ancient histories are replete with examples of such incidents. And this account of the Canaanite woman falls into the same pattern. She was 
a suppliant. When a Canaanite woman admitted to Yahshua Christ that she was indeed a dog while professing that he could indeed heal her daughter, she both recognized him as having been sent by Yahweh God and she surrendered to the truth of the word. Having such a surrendered enemy making supplication before him, while at the same time that enemy was admitting the truth of the word, agreeing with God. Yahshua had no choice but to show her mercy, since by his own word, the destruction of his enemies was still afar off, and she volunteered such submission in supplication as her own statement demonstrates. Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. By this act of mercy, if we examine the scripture, Yahshua also fulfilled the truth of the scripture. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 7. When a man's ways please Yahweh, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Therefore, Joshua, keeping his own word, had no choice but to grant this act of mercy to the Canaanite woman as an example of his own teaching. Here, in the account of Christ and the Canaanite woman, we have a model of the suppliant recognizing and beseeching a powerful man. The concept of the suppliant was very important in the ancient world. And we, in modern times, have lost it in the mechanizations of bureaucracy. A suppliant is today in English merely one who makes a humble, earnest, and expectantly sincere plea for something from another. But in the ancient world, the idea had a strong religious connotation attached to it. Those who refused suppliance were seen as cruel, and they invited the wrath of the gods, or the wrath of God, upon themselves. Suppliants often acted in desperation and took olive branches as a sign of their humbled state. Sometimes, even wearing garments of mourning, throwing themselves at the feet of a ruler, a general, or even an altar, often grasping the garment of the one they sought favor from, and they begged earnestly for the mercy that they wished to receive. Our presentation of last August gave many examples from Greek and Roman literature of the attitudes towards suppliance and examples of the act of the suppliant in the ancient world, from Homer all the way down through Livy. That's a period of about 600 years. Yahshua Christ was Yahweh God incarnate, as the scriptures insist. Oh, I'm sorry, the pudgy little Jew boy, he, he denies that too, but we won't. Therefore, Yahshua was well aware of what he himself decreed concerning the Canaanites. If we would disregard his commandments, 
and try to abuse this encounter with the Canaanite woman in order to pervert the gospel of Christ into a message of universalism, then the curse upon Israel is fulfilled in us, and this woman, this Canaanite woman, is a thorn and a prick in our eyes. Thorns and pricks in the eyes cause blindness, and the punishment for disregarding the word of God is blindness from the curses of disobedience. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 28, Yahweh shall smite thee with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart, and thou shalt grope at noonday as the blind gropeth in darkness, and thou shalt not prosper in thy ways, and thou shalt be only oppressed and spoiled evermore, and no man shall save thee. You shouldn't take that blindness literally. The children of Israel are to be a separate people, and Yahweh promised salvation only to the children of Israel. From Zechariah chapter 14, the last words of the prophet, Yeah, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness under Yahweh of hosts. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and see therein. And in that day there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of Yahweh of hosts. There Zechariah forebodes the day when there will be no Canaanites. Period. We wrote as the conclusion to our presentation of last August, the Canaanite woman is certainly a thorn in our eyes and a prick in our sides today. And therefore, the word of our God stands. Because Joshua Christ, through this dog of bone, she is a prick in the side of every Christian identity adherent who cannot understand why he would do such a thing. And she is a thorn in the eye of all who would embrace universalism because of this singular act of mercy. And those with such thorns in their eyes had the nerve to imagine Yahweh our God to be a hypocrite. Yet Yahweh does not change, because indeed the day is coming when there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of Yahweh of hosts. The entire earth is his footstool. Do not imagine a crumb to lead to any ultimate mercy for the accursed Canaanites. If you accept universalism on account of the Canaanite woman, then she is a thorn in your eyes, and she has fulfilled the prophetic role assigned to her race. And the blindness of Israel is fulfilled in you for your disobedience, for your discarding of the law of God. If you believe the universalist assertions of that pudgy little Jew boy in Chicago who's playing CI pastor, then he is a prick in your eyes. Yeah, he's a prick in your eyes, all right. He has fulfilled the prophetic role assigned to his race, and the blindness of Israel is fulfilled in you. Yahshua Christ had another seemingly unexpected encounter with a woman which is recorded in Scripture, that of the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. We're going to use her account 
as both a counterpoint to the account of the Canaanite woman and as an introduction to another portion of Scripture we hope to discuss tonight, which the Universalists love, the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's one of the favorites of the clown at Cherokee People's Ministries. From the Christogenia New Testament, John chapter 4. I'll probably interpolate some comments. Therefore, as Yahshua had become aware that the Pharisees that the Pharisees heard that Yahshua makes and immerses more students than John, even though Yahshua himself had not immersed but his students, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And it was necessary for him to pass through Samaria. So he comes to a city of Samaria called Sukkar, near the land which Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And there was a well of Jacob's there. Then Yahshua, being tired from the journey, sat thusly by the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is noon in our clocks. A woman of Samaria comes to draw water. Yahshua says to her, give me the drink. For his students had gone off to the city that they may buy food. Yahshua wouldn't even talk to the Canaanite woman. He asks the Samaritan woman for something to drink. Then the Samaritan woman says to him, you, being a Judean, how do you request from me being a Samaritan woman, to drink, for the Judeans have no dealings with the Samaritans. And that was true. Yahshua replied and said to her, If you knew the gift of Yahweh and who it is saying to you, Give me the drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given to you living water. The woman says to him, Master, you do not even have a bucket. And the well is deep. So from where do you have living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and had drank from it himself with his sons and his cattle? This woman was obviously of the remnant of Israelites who had at one time escaped being taken captive by the Assyrians. But these people not having any genealogies, and having been mingled among others brought into the land by the Assyrians, these people were never accepted by those Judeans who had returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. And for this, there was always hatred between the Samaritans and the Judeans. The Samaritans knew they were Israelites. The Judeans would not accept them. Yahshua responded and said to her, Each who is drinking from this water shall thirst again. But he who should drink from the water which I shall give to him shall not thirst for eternity. But the water which I shall give to him will become in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. The woman says to him, Master, give me this water 
that I shall not thirst nor pass by here to draw. The woman obviously had faith in the words of Christ, as he told us, my sheep hear my voice. He says to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman replied and said to him, I do not have a husband. Yahshua says to her, you have spoken well that I do not have a husband. For you have had five husbands, and now he whom you have is not your husband. By this you spoke the truth. The woman can count. The woman says to him, Master, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers have worshipped on this mountain. Now that reference is a reference to Mount Gerizim. On Mount Gerizim, because they were not accepted by the Judeans. On Mount Gerizim, the Samaritans built a temple in the Persian period that lasted for over 300 years until it was destroyed by the Maccabees. Yet, do you say that in Jerusalem is the place where it is necessary to worship? That would have been what she expected to hear from a man of Judah. Yahshua says to her, Believe me, woman, that the hour comes when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, because salvation is from among the Judeans. But the hour comes and is now when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father also seeks such as those worshiping him. Yahweh is a spirit, and for those worshiping him, it is necessary to worship in spirit and in truth. The woman says to him, I know that Messiah comes, who is called Christ. When he should come, he shall announce to us all things. Yahshua says to her, I am he who is speaking to you. And with this, his students had come, and they wondered that he had spoken with a woman. Yet no one had said, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? Then the woman left her water and went off to the city and says to the man, come, see a man who has told me all things, whatever I had done. Could it be that he is the Christ? So they came out of the city and came to him. Now there are some fools who contradicting the obvious meaning of the discourse between Christ and the Canaanite woman insist that she was not a Canaanite, but rather she was one of the lost sheep. However, Christ asserted that she was not one of the lost sheep and that she did not belong at the table of the children. She was certainly a Canaanite, and that is all the more obvious when her account is compared to this account of the Samaritan woman. It cannot be said that the Canaanite woman is one of the lost sheep, especially when he tells her that she's a dog and she agrees.
However, this Samaritan woman is indeed one of the lost sheep, and Christ accepts her immediately, asks her to drink, starts a conversation with her. And this Samaritan woman herself attests here in verse 12 of John chapter 4 that she is a descendant of Jacob. And Yahshua did not object to her testimony. Even in spite of the fact that there was an intense hatred between the Samaritans and the Judeans, which is recorded in Josephus, and it's also recorded here in the Gospel, at the beginning of this chapter, in the words of the woman herself. Yahshua was accepting of this woman from the beginning, and he never called her a dog. That is absolutely contrary to his treatment of the Canaanite bitch, the Canaanite was a Canaanite indeed. And this Samaritan woman, who is recorded as having been in expectation of the Messiah, was certainly one of the lost sheep. To continue from John chapter 4, in the meantime, his students asked him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat which you do not know. Then the students said to one another, Has anyone brought for him to eat? Joshua says to them, My food is that I shall do the will of he who has sent me, and that I shall finish his work. Do you not say that there are still four months and the harvest comes? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and see the fields, that they are already white for harvest. He reaping receives a wage and gathers fruit for eternal life. Notice that the fields are white for harvest. That he sowing and he reaping would rejoice together. For in this, the word is true, that it is one who sows and another who reaps. Paul taught this later on, right? In, in 1 Corinthians. I have sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others labored, and you entered in for their labor. And from that, many of the Samaritans had believed in him through the word of the testimony of the woman that he told me all things which I had done. Therefore, as the, as the Samaritans came to him, having asked him to stay with them, then he stayed there for two days, and with many more, they believed through his word. And they had said to the woman that no longer do we believe because of your speech, for we ourselves have heard, and we know that he is truly the savior of the society. And after two days, he had departed from there for Galilee. For Yahshua himself had testified, had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own fatherland. Therefore, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans all welcomed him, who had seen how many things he had done in Jerusalem, for they had also come to the feast. 
Not only was the Samaritan woman an Israelite, but the people of this city, Sukkar, must have been Israelites, as Christ came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he spent several days there preaching the gospel to these people, who were also recorded here as having been in anticipation of a Messiah. Ostensibly, Christ was able to have communion since he wasn't reconciled to cast off Israel, to Israel, to uncircumcised pagan Israel until after he died, he being Yahweh. Ostensibly, Christ was able to have communion with these Samaritans only because they were Israelites in the first place, but also because they had been keeping the law and the Sabbaths, at least to an acceptable degree. They just couldn't go to, to Judea, to the temple in Jerusalem. They weren't accepted there. They built their own temple in Mount Gerizim in the day of the Persians, in the 5th century BC. And they had practiced, as well as they could, the Hebrew religion of their ancestors, so far as we can determine from the records which we have here and in Josephus. Josephus, however, being a Judean and a Pharisee, was very critical of the Samaritans. He saw them as interlopers also. Yet these Samaritans evidently clung to the covenant in the manner of the Isaiah chapter 56 analogy of the eunuch and the dry tree. They were part of alienated Israel, and therefore they were eunuchs and dry trees who kept Yahweh's Sabbaths. Knowing that at least many of the Samaritans were Israelites, and that could be easily told from this account here in John chapter 4, we can now better understand the parable of the Good Samaritan found in Luke chapter 10. And we're going to read from verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer arose, making trial of him, meaning Christ, saying, Teacher, what should I do that I shall inherit eternal life? So he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read? And replying, he said, Love Yahweh your God with your whole heart and with your whole soul and with your entire strength and with your whole mind and he near to you as yourself. He near to you. That word neighbor. In Hebrew, that word neighbor comes from a word, a verb, which means to graze together, to be nourished together. Somebody can only be your neighbor if they're from the same flock. And he said to him, you reply correctly, do this and you shall live. But he wishing to deem himself righteous said to Yahshua, Yet, who is he near to me? Retorting, Yahshua said, A certain man went down to Jericho from Jerusalem, and he encountered robbers, and stripping him, 
and inflicting him with the beating, they departed, leaving him half dead. And there happened upon him some priest who was going down by that road, and seeing him, he passed by on the opposite side. And likewise, also a Levite. You know, Christ is sending us a signal here where he uses priest in his example, and then he uses Levite in his example. And the lesson we should learn to that, the lesson we should learn from that, is that in the Old Testament, the only legitimate priests were Levites. But here in this period, we could have a priest who's not a Levite. Well, we understand that in Christian identity. We understand that there were a lot of priests that were Edomites. And I believe Christ is sort of using this example just to send us a message that most people will probably never see, even if they read this parable a thousand times. And likewise also, a Levite arriving at that place, coming and seeing him, he passed by on the opposite side. Then a certain Samaritan traveling came by him, and seeing him, he was deeply moved. And coming forth, he bound his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine, and putting him upon his own beast, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Then on the next day, paying, he had given him two denarii to the innkeeper. He had given two denarii to the innkeeper and said, You must care for him. And whatever you may spend in addition, I, upon my coming back, shall repay to you. Which of these three is supposed by you had been near to him who had fallen in with the robbers? And he said, he doing mercifully with him. Then Yahshua said to him, you must go and do likewise. Now here, for the most part, I'm going to quote from my presentation of Luke chapter 10, which I gave here in August of 2012. First, the term priest is not at all an indicator of race in first century Judea. It is only an indicator of status. Indeed, Christ consistently censured the priest's who are not true children of Abraham. While Levi was a tribe, and a Levite was a member of a tribe, that term was also an indication of a certain status which members of the tribe were accustomed to. It was the Levites that were supposed to be the priests. This priest evidently was in the example of Christ, evidently was not a Levite. So Levite here, even though it's a tribe, also indicated a certain status or rank. So the comparison here cannot be among races because we have apples and oranges. Priest is not a race. The comparison here in the 
parable of the Good Samaritan must be among people of various classes. The parable of the Good Samaritan can have nothing to do with race. Understanding the parable of the Good Samaritan requires some background on who the Samaritans were, how they were viewed by the Judeans at the time, and why Yahshua chose them for his illustration here. The Roman district of Samaria was roughly equivalent to the ancient lands of Ephraim and that portion of Manasseh west of the river Jordan. It is evident that while most of the Israelites were taken into Assyrian captivity, or because they managed to eat, many were, I'm sorry, it is evident that while most of the Israelites were taken into Assyrian captivity, many Israelites were left behind purposely, and that record is in 2 Kings 25, verse 12. Or, because they managed to elude capture, and that record is in 2 Chronicles, chapter 30, verse 6. So there were Israelites left behind in the land. Later, the Assyrians moved foreign peoples into Samaria to resettle the land. And these were people who were made subject from other lands which the Assyrians had conquered elsewhere. While many of the tribal names of these people are obscure where we read the records, 2 Kings chapter 17, 2 Chronicles chapter 33, Ezra chapter 4, even though the tribal names were obscure, knowing the regions which the Assyrians had conquered, there is little doubt there is little reason to doubt that these were Adamic peoples. And many of the peoples that Assyrians brought into Samaria were certainly Adamic people from other Genesis 10 nations from elsewhere in Mesopotamia. The history of Samaria is very sketchy in the intertestamental period, and there is not even an assurance that any of those tribes that were brought in had remained in Samaria, especially since the Persian period was very forgiving to displaced peoples. We see that Cyrus allowed the Judeans to return to their original homeland if they so desired. Well, the Persians allowed other people that were moved around by the Assyrians and the Babylonians to return to their original homelands as well. There is no doubt, however, that the people of Judea from the earliest times, from the time of their return from Babylon, despised the Samaritans. That's evident in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and here in the New Testament. It's also evident, and it's also recorded that the feeling was mutual in Josephus, in his book of Antiquities, books 11 
and 20. Yet, it is also evident at the time of Christ that many people in Judea were not actually Israelites, but they were Edomites or other Canaanites. And that some of the Samaritans, as we've seen here in John chapter 4, were certainly Israelites. When certain Pharisees claimed to be the children of Abraham, and they weren't because they weren't legitimate, because they were not through Jacob Israel, Yahshua Christ challenged their claim because they were really Edomites. Yet, when the Samaritan woman, who voiced an expectation of Israel's coming Messiah, when she claimed to be a daughter of Jacob, her claim was not denied. Rather, it was substantiated by the subsequent events described in John chapter 4. It is obvious that first century Judeans, those who were Israelites, were making distinctions based upon religious and political boundaries, like we do today, and they were ignoring the more important, more permanent bonds of kinship and race, just as many people do today. The Good Samaritan Christ had in mind could not have been somebody of a non-Adamic race. The Good Samaritan could not have been a Negro or a Chinaman or a Cherokee. The Good Samaritan was certainly a descendant of Adam and certainly a lost Israelite like the Samaritans in Sukkar. The parable of the Good Samaritan is not about race, and it cannot be about race, because Christ compares a Levite, a priest, and a Samaritan. And we see many of the Samaritans are Israelites by blood, just as well as the Levites. And the Levites are the ones that should have been priests, so if there were priests in Israel, there weren't Levites. They certainly were not Israelites. But this isn't about race. This is about status. Because priest is not a race in the first century. Priest was not a racial distinction. And neither was Samaritan. Samaritan was a geographical distinction. There was no race of Samaritans. Over the 600 years before Christ, Samaria was inhabited by people of all different sorts of tribes, in addition to a, a remnant of Israel. But most of those tribes were all white Adamic peoples from various places in Mesopotamia. Therefore, this parable cannot be used to support universalism because it's not about race. It's about the status of people. It is about the acceptance. The, the, the Samaritans amongst the Judeans to whom Christ 
gave the parable, the Samaritans were the lowest of all peoples, not by race, by class. The parable is about the acceptance of the, impar- of the apparently impious and the wickedness of the supposedly pious. It is about judging our fellow white men by their fruits and not by their station in life. So the parable of the Good Samaritan cannot be about race, and therefore it cannot be used by the bastard preachers claiming to be CI who are really mongrel universalists like Geronimo Visser, Joe November. The law of God tells Christians that the Canaanites were cursed. And it goes back further than that. There are two seeds in Genesis 3.15. You're either on one side of the fence or you're on the other side of the fence. And there's no hopping the genetic fence. Cain, everybody that believes two seed line understands that Cain was the son of the serpent. Cain couldn't choose to do good. He was challenged to do good, and he went out and killed his brother. Yahweh knew that he was going to kill his brother, even though he challenged him to do good. A bad tree does not produce good fruit. Everybody that's ever claimed to be two-seed-line Christian identity should understand that. Until recently, when this clown named Joe November started professing that Canaanites could be saved, Canaanites could get crumbs, that we could tear the bread and, 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 and the steak out of the hands of the children of Israel, throw it on the floor to the dogs and call it crumbs. That's his theology. If we disregard the law of God from his own word, we can expect Canaanites to be thorns and pricks in our eyes because that's what the word of God says that they would be. The Word of God doesn't say there will be anything else except to teach us war and to be thorns and pricks in our eyes. Christ came to open the eyes of the blind, and therefore we must know that the day is coming, that there will not be a Canaanite in the house of Yahweh. We await that day, so therefore we must come out from among them, We cannot accept Canaanites. We cannot accept people that are 1% Canaanite or 15% Canaanite. There's no arbitrary percentages. You're a bastard or you're a son. There's nothing in between. There are people who accept the Scripture, and there are people who contend with the Scripture. If Yahweh says that the Canaanites are preserved 
so that they shall be thorns and pricks in the eyes of the Israelites. And you say that Yahweh healed the Canaanite because Canaanites can receive mercy from God? Then your reasoning is not God's reasoning, and you are contending with the Scripture rather than accepting the Word of God. Do you know who contends with the Scripture? The damn rabbis contend with the Scripture. Did you ever read the Talmud? Did you ever look at the Mishnah? I know that Joe November, he has read the Talmud. He knows damn well what it's about. The entire commentary on the law in the Talmud is all about contending with the Word of God. The rabbis see what they think or what they twist into two conflicting verses. And they try to use one verse to disprove or nullify another verse. That's the Jewish approach to Scripture. That's the approach that Joe November takes. Oh, my verse is better than your verse. I'm going to prove you wrong. No, you're not, because every word of God stands and does not change. And if you think there's a conflict, the conflict is in your mongrelized mind. That's where the conflict is, because you're a bastard. That's how the Jews do it. That's what the Talmud's all about. My verse is better than your verse. I'm going to prove you wrong. If your so-called pastor is teaching universalism because of any of these stories, then he is either blind from the pricks of the Canaanites, or he is a prick in your eye. He is certainly not an identity Christian. Rather, he is a scourge to Israel who has no care for identity. We, as a movement, must shed ourselves of all those who contend with the word of our God, attempting to mongrelize Christian identity. They have to go. We have to grow up. Thank you for listening. I will be here next Friday, Romans chapter 11. Next Saturday, some more myths dispelled. Praise Yahweh, and good night.